What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. In for Kelly, here's what's ahead. More tech layoffs, more Musk headlines, and the two themes dominating Silicon Valley right now. VC Sam Lesson is here with what he is seeing and who he sees winning the AI race. Plus, we are at the halfway mark for earnings. We have three more names getting ready to report, one of which has been getting crushed since covid and that's actually one of the reasons our trader likes it. And don't worry about a new wall of worries, says our market guest. The stage is set for solid returns. He'll tell you where he sees them this year. All that ahead, but as always, let us start with Dominic Chu and see what is happening in today's session. All right, so Sully, fractional gains, fractional losses, but for the most part, a very stable market so far today. The Dow Industrial is up about 89 points, one quarter of 1%. The outperformer so far today, 38,467, the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer, down nearly one half of 1%. It's at 15,536 and change. The S&P 500 currently stands at 4940, just down two points, so just about flat on the session. Uh, at the lows of the session, we were down roughly eight points. Well, if I could draw on there, I'm going to do it right here. Down eight points, up about 15 points at the highs of the session. So, Tilting a little bit towards the middle part of that range, we'll see if that sticks around for the afternoon part of the session. If you take a look at one of the big themes we're watching today, it's across the Pacific Ocean. Namely, what's happening with large cap tech stocks in China. This is the iShares China large cap ETF trades Hong Kong listed Chinese companies. The ticker is FXI. It's up 5% today after the government and sovereign wealth funds over there make up a mosaic of possible speculation about more intervention coming from the government and sovereign wealth funds at some point down the line to prop up the market over there. It's been an underperformer, heavily so, over the last few years. So we'll see whether or not the best day over the last couple of years has any kind of bearing on that trade. And then on our own side of the Atlantic and Pacific, take a look at what's happening with New York Community Bank Corp, NYCB. It's down another 14% today, $4.63 so far. Again, remember, this company reported a surprise loss, boost in loan loss reserves that slashed its dividend. We're also hearing some commentary out of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about the risks in commercial real estate to certain parts of the overall market. Anyway, on balance, regional banks are still a focus here today, Bri. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll see you in a bit. All right, so the big thing in the economy lately is actually layoffs. Layoffs.fy reports that 32,000 tech jobs have been cut so far this year, and of course, we're only in February. Just yesterday, Snap announced it was eliminating 10% of its workforce, and that trend may continue because your next guest says Silicon Valley is all in on financial discipline. Joining us now is Sam Lesson. He is general partner at Slow Ventures. Feel like I got a lot of alliteration here going on, Sam. Good to have you on. It's impressive. Uh, listen, thank you very much. It's, it's what I do. Listen, the overall jobs numbers for America are good. We know that last month was a blowout. So what's happening in Silicon Valley? 
Efficiency. I mean, I think the reality is, is that for a long time, Silicon Valley was obviously crushing it. And the big tech companies, uh, because they were focused on growth, um, they really weren't so concerned about the bottom line, right? People knew it was there when it needed to be there. The, obviously, there was a huge reckoning they went through. And I think we're now in this period where there's a combination of AI, which does automate a lot and does create a lot of opportunities for uh, for automation and improvement there, coupled with kind of wake-up call for for financial discipline. And you're starting to see what tech companies can really do. Was it a, an instant, Sam, and I kind of posited this last night in a post on X, is this just a result of over-hiring? You talk about discipline, but, you know, we came out of COVID. No one knew really what was going on. Tech was the place to be. You could work from home, et cetera. Was this just too much hiring? Is that how we should look at it? Well, I think what it is is that tech companies, obviously, a lot of them are very ambitious, right? And over the years, the kind of ambition has, there's been an arms race for talent. Google's done this forever, right? Other people have. And hoarding talent was kind of the key name of the game. They were so profitable that it didn't really matter, right? In terms of how much talent you hoard. And you just wanted those engineers and those people in case something big opportunity came up. They didn't cost you anything. What we kind of saw coming out of COVID and some financial discipline and reckoning there was people said, oh my goodness, hoarding talent, maybe, you know, at, at very high prices might not really be the right strategy. And I think what you're seeing now is, you know, and I, I do give Elon Musk credit for this, for kicking off and making this acceptable with Twitter, but a lot of the big companies decided to get lean and efficient. Um, and, you know, this is where you kind of start to see the incredible leverage of what these tech platforms really have, which is they didn't need those people, right? They were hoarding the talent. It was an option bet and it was a cheap one for them. Um, but now they're going to start saying, we're still going to go faster and bigger. There's huge opportunities ahead with AI. There's huge opportunities for more efficiency. And it turned out we really didn't need most of those people anyway. Well, that's the question, because AI, it's all we talk about now, and it's supposed to be this massive thing, the biggest generational shift maybe since the internet itself. Will AI be a net job adder or a net job remover? I, I think the question whether AI adds or removes jobs is kind of a question of time frame. Uh, short term, I think what you're going to see is, again, I'm, I'm not a big believer in AGI or some of these visions that are being put forth. The, you know, Ultimately, we don't need human workforce. What I will say is it's, it's going to be an efficiency driver. It's very clear. And companies that can incrementally harvest that efficiency are going to do fabulously well. Right? The companies that require AGI to change their business models is going to be a longer story. But for people who can chip away and automate, you know, it really is cloud 2.0. It really is just kind of pure efficiency in the, in the sense of technology. And that will remove jobs um, in a lot of places. I do think the economy grows. I do think they get added back in places. And I'll stay away from talking about the AGI future where you know humans don't need to do anything because I think that's a lot of smoke. Why is that? Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of overlap between religion and technologists. Um, and, you know, if you push technologists further enough, they're going to start talking like religious leaders. And I think the reality is while the returns on large data sets and guess the next word models and how do you optimize ad copy or videos are very real, you know, coming from AI, those are all very practical. The second you start talking about, you know, super intelligence or alternative intelligences, um, you know, at the level of human sophistication, um, I think I think that is much more religious than practical. That's a fascinating take, and I, I'm not sure I would disagree with that, although you could overlap religion with maybe a lot of things that are, that are out there right now. So if we're going to predict, right, Sam, not predictive AI, we're going to use your yep. intelligence. What is going to be the theme of the rest of 2024 with technology? 
Yeah, I think the theme of 2024 is going to be applied current generation AI, uh, starting to harvest the winds from it. I think people have already priced in and gotten excited about the long-term potential, you know, of where the world could magically go in the long-term future. But people are going to start saying, "Great, where's the payoff now?" I think that payoff is clear for companies like Adobe that can do, you know, amazing things by adding to their existing platform. I think it's clear for things like Meta, where all of a sudden, I mean, I, I was buying Meta ads or something in the last week, and I'll tell you, you're already seeing AI show up in meaningful ways, right? And so I think you're going to see that incremental chip, chip, chip away. It's going to help profitability. It's going to help growth for people who can leverage it incrementally. And I think that's going to be rewarded um, versus kind of the general broad idea of revolution. Do you think there's any kind of an AI stock bubble out there anywhere, Sam? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a bubble in a lot of places on it. And, you know, I'm a venture capitalist. I'd say in venture capital, you're going to see huge wipeouts in the quote-unquote AI theme. Things are being massively overpriced because people are excited. Um, I do think that in the next, and I'm not sure whether it's the next 12 months or 18 months, there's going to be some discipline coming where the street and I think investors are, who in public companies are going to say, look, it's great that you have a theoretical AI story. Show me the money, right? And so I do think there are things that are currently overpriced because they're priced on yeah. hype. Um, but I do think on the flip side, there are other things where the benefits of the automation, the practical AI in front of us are incredibly real and incredibly immediate. And I think when you start to see people delivering real returns on that, um, that's going to be very exciting. Fascinating. Uh, on a lot of levels, including the bubble. Well, you know, listen, we'll see. It's been a heck of a run. A lot of money's following it. Sam Lesson, Slow Ventures. Sam, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, we are now halfway through earnings season, which means there's as much opportunity ahead as there is behind. And today, we're looking at Alibaba, Amgen, and Uber. It's all part of today's earnings exchange. And here with the trade is Jeff Kilberg, KKM financial founder and CEO, and of course, a CNBC contributor. My man, how you doing? Sully, doing great, pal. How about you? All right, good to see you in the daylight. Let's start with Alibaba. Like many China stocks, it's been crushed down 27% this year. Did rise today with the overall market, Jeff, as China's taking desperate measures to try to prop up stocks. Now, Morgan Stanley is watching Baba for any AI, what we just talked about, related news. But the macro China economy is still in question. That was our mystery chart, Jeff, at the top of the show. What is your take on Baba? My trading take on this, Sully, is that you have to be a buyer here. And the reason why is if you look at how much has gone down, let's look at a five-year snapshot. And I know Dom was earlier talking about FXI, which is the large cap iShares China ETF, which is up 5% today. But if you look on a five-year snapshot, the S&P is up nearly 100%. And we're seeing BABA down 55% and FXI down about 42%. So this is a trade. You're seeing valuations very cheap in BABA. And I think China is committed. They've kind of been towing their way into the water. But I think they're committed to move the market higher here. Short term, I think you get a pop in BABA. But this is a risky opportunity, down 75% off its all-time high when Jack Ma was really you know, in behind the wheel. But right now, I think BABA is an opportunity to trade. Okay, there you go. All right, next up is Amgen. It's having a big year. Already at more than 10%, Jeff. They bought Horizon Therapeutics back in October. And J.P. Morgan seeing opportunity in those new assets. Also, of course, closely watching the weight loss pipeline, saying that Amgen is the best large cap name to challenge the existing drugs from Lilly, Novo, and others. Jeff, are you a buyer here of Amgen? 
I am a buyer, but you have to be cautious up here at these 52-week highs. And I think Amgen, they are coming into the obesity drug. Obviously, you're seeing Eli Lilly with ZepBound. You're also seeing Novo. Those are two leaders. But I think there's plenty of room. I actually had a couple family members suggest that maybe uh, I take a look at some of these weight loss drugs. So I think that was a little harsh. But nonetheless, I think Amgen has the ability to move higher. I think the acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics, which is a rare disease drug, you're going to see that payoff in Q3, Q4. But it is exciting here. I also own Lilly, full disclosure, by I think you can own Amgen here, despite the fact it's very expensive and it's overextended when you talk about relative strength index. It's got a level of 77, Sully. Wow. So basically own them all. I think if I'm hearing you right, right? I think so. High tide lifts all boats, right? There you go. All right. Finally, Jeff, we got Uber. Now, Uber has been an Uber run. It's doubled over the past year. KeyBank highlighting successful cost management efforts, but they're also watching Lyft because apparently app downloads for Lyft have lifted. All right, so Jeff, with Uber, has that stock run up too much for you or still value here? Pump the brakes, Sully. I think you have to look at where this has come. It's up 150% in 2023. It's off to a great start. It's up today. So seeing where it is right now, I think you have to take profits. If you still own it, I think you can be cautious and put on some type of option overlay. But I think the incentives that they're forced or they need to give their drivers globally, that's a headwind. I also think you think their marketing expenses become more of a headwind as they fight Lyft. So it'll be interesting to see what the earnings has to say, but I'm a seller here. I think it pulls back here. It's too much too fast. So pump those brakes. Pump those brakes like any good Uber driver would in traffic. All right, overall, Jeff, I want to get your macro market take. You know, been a pretty good start to the year. Magnificent 7 minus Tesla, of course, has done very, very well. You just heard the previous guest say that he thought it was a 100% chance of some kind of AI bubble in the market right now. I disagree. I think there's more room to run. And I think it's very, it's fascinating to me. We actually had Fed Chairman Powell. He was forced to go on 60 Minutes to try to slow down what is happening in the economy. We're seeing great data. We're seeing cooling inflation. I know the 10-year note went above 4% because that was a reaction to the March rate cut being taken off. But the Fed is going to be forced to cut rates. I think the economy is strong. The consumer is strong. So I think there's more room to run. It's not going to be linear. It's not going to be a straight line. But with the VIX where it is right now, Sully, I'm cautiously optimistic. It's an election year. There's a lot of good juju in the market right now, so I don't see how you fight it. Isn't it amazing? We've got, at this point, daily missile attacks in the Red Sea. The U.S. military is actively bombing targets in Iraq and parts of Syria and Yemen. They're shooting back at us. Israel, Hamas, all that. China kind of on this, you know, doom rattle. And yet the VIX is below whatever, what, below 20. Make it make sense. Below 15. Make it make sense. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's $8 trillion reasons why it makes sense. There's $8 trillion in cash and cash equivalents. So a lot of people who either took profits or underinvested, they're trying to scratch their head. The S&P maybe takes a pause at 5000 That seems to be a monumental mark. We go up there and back and fill. But for the rest of the year, I think the underinvested, the bears, will continue to be chasing this market higher. It may come down in the Q3, Q4 area, but right now this earnings season has been very impressive to me. Very impressive to Jeff Kilberg and that itself. Is very impressive. You're impressive to me, Sully. You know that? Oh, just keep it coming. All right, Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. Really appreciate it, my man. Have a great day. See you, pal. All right, coming up, corporate defaults. They're on the rise. The sector's most at risk for maybe more ahead. Plus, Election Day, only nine months away. And a new CNBC survey is looking at how young voters view the economy. We have got the results and the person behind the poll. The exchange returns right after this. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The Fed may be getting ready to cut interest rates in the summer. Who knows? But for a growing number of companies, that may not come soon enough. According to Moody's Investor Service, corporate defaults nearly tripled last year. In the fourth quarter alone, companies defaulted on more than $19 billion worth of debt, two-thirds of them owned by private equity, with healthcare seeing the biggest uptick. So what might this signal about the state of direct lending and the trend in defaults for the rest of the year? Let's find out. Joining us is Christina Paget, Moody's head of leverage finance and private credit research. Christina, thanks for coming out to CNBC. The numbers are on the rise, but overall, I believe they are still relatively muted for now, historically. Well, if you compare them to the pandemic or to the global financial crisis, defaults are lower. And that, that's true. I think the risk is that even if rates come down, they'll stay elevated. And so for highly leveraged businesses, the sort of the purview of the LBO and private equity-backed sponsors businesses, uh, the risk will remain prevalent. Even if we think it'll peak this quarter, um, we think that there's continuing risk. So how do default rates and default dollar amounts then compare to, say, normal, (laughs) non-pandemic, non-crisis times? Well, historically, the other thing is, after those last two crises, rates went down to almost zero. So defaults peaked very high and then dropped precipitously. Mm. We don't expect that to happen this time. The Fed may take rates down. We don't think they're going to take them down nearly as low as they did after the last two cycles. So there's going to continue to be pressure on the most highly leveraged businesses. And it's not just directly higher borrowing costs, I would assume, meaning that companies have to pay more for their debt, it's probably the impact that those borrowing costs are going to have on the overall economy. Well, two things happen. The higher rates slow down the economy. So those, that earnings lift that you thought you were going to get when you bought that business in 21, uh-huh. levered it up, paid a high multiple, that, that earnings uh, expectation has declined. The other thing that happens when you take rates up is asset prices you know, decline as well. So valuations are lower. So there's yeah. pressure on those businesses that'll persist. Well, private equity is going to private equity. That's what they're going to do. They don't, they, don't, they don't sit on money to not invest it. So Correct. sounds like private equity might have made a lot of bad bets or bad forecasts about where rates in the economy were going in 21 and probably overpaid for companies that they should not have overpaid for. True enough. And as I noticed, you mentioned direct lenders. One thing that did happen in 22 and 23 
when rates came up and the market got a lot more uh, sort of risk averse, mm. they came in and refinanced some of those deals. So there was some ad additional liquidity that came into the market through the private credit side. What does that mean? It means that if you're worried about liquidity for the weakest companies, the fact that private credit has been able to grow more capital and provide some lending to yeah. the private equity sponsored businesses, it alleviated some of the defaults. It doesn't solve the problem, but it definitely yeah. um, created a, a valve when the syndicated loan market, for example, wasn't there. Got a beautiful chart on the wall, this giant wall behind you, and it's breaking it down by sectors. A lot going on there. Kind of looks like my EKG when I used to anchor <laughs> the 5 a.m. show. Media, our industry, we know it's been just suffering. Companies are going bust left and right, laying people off. What do you see from a sector perspective? Which ones are most at risk now? I always like to start with the point that the most at risk sectors in this environment are LBOs. So you take all those companies, the majority of them might be a consumer goods company, might be a retail and apparel company, but it's probably owned by a private equity sponsor. Mm. That being said, you think about something like the, the durable sector. They did really well during the pandemic. We were all stuck at home buying stuff for the house. That changed. Now people, That's home goods and stuff, a right. durable. Yeah. yeah. So now you, you're done buying home goods, and what you really want to do is take a trip. Mm -hmm. So those businesses are actually doing better. The stay-at-home businesses are doing worse. But then overall, that high-rate environment just changes the consumer behavior to some degree. Consumers have been pretty strong. Americans are good consumers. I see telecoms pretty high, at least the projection heading out to January 25. According yeah. to that chart, it's tapping 20%. Those are more vulnerable businesses to start. So, okay. so they, you know, those are businesses that are having more of um, a secular issue. So if you, if you dive into each of these companies, there are some idiosyncratic characteristics. But the big problem is they can't afford the debt on their balance sheet. Well, that, that would be a problem. <laughs> I mean, by the way, that's, Christina, that's a problem for humans and companies. Yes. I can't afford the debt on blank balance sheet, whether it's a company or a person. So well, does, it, yeah, does the Federal Reserve, it not also maybe because of massive U.S. debt, but you think they're looking at this kind of information and thinking maybe we need to cut rates a little sooner or more aggressively because we don't want a wave of corporate defaults. Does it I, go into their thinking? I think what we saw in the last two cycles was that the Fed really took into account the state of the financial markets. I think that was very clear. Powell does a good job at that. I think this time he has the added concern of inflation. And he's clearly articulated that that is top of mind. Mm. Um, we fully believe at Moody's that rates will come down, you know, maybe end of May, maybe mm. a little bit later. But, uh, but that is not to go down to that sort of Zero range. And bear in mind that these companies, they're, they're mostly owned by private equity. They're going to do some kind of distressed exchange. Financial engineering is their thing. Yeah. Um, Got to pay all those Duke MBAs, Christina. <laughs> Not knocking Duke. I'm just, I just happen to have top of mind. But, you know, financial engineering is their thing. And I think that those, those folks are going to earn their pay based on your projections. They're going to have to figure out something. But they can always go home and say, at least we're not in commercial real estate. <laughs> Christina Paget of Moody's Investor Service. Thank you. Sure. All right.
Coming up, we are just over 30 minutes away from the release of the NTSB's report on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 door blowout. Phil LeBeau spoke with the head of the FAA and will join us with highlights ahead. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Coming back a little bit from yesterday's drop, the Dow is up 45 points right now. All right. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapping up her testimony on Capitol Hill just moments ago. Washington correspondent Megan Casella has the highlights. Megan. Thanks, Brian. As you know, New York Community Bank shares have been under pressure in recent days after Fitch downgraded the stock and a fourth quarter loss by the bank. So Secretary Yellen was asked about the bank today during a hearing on Capitol Hill. She was careful to say that she would not be commenting on an individual bank, but she was saying that the Treasury is in touch with bank supervisors and, quote, monitoring current banking stresses carefully. Now, Yellen also commented on the risks in commercial real estate more broadly. And listen to this. Commercial real estate is an area that um, we've long been aware um, could create financial stability risks or um, losses in the banking system. And um, this is something that requires careful supervisory attention. Now, in her testimony, Yellen acknowledged the risks of high vacancy rates in commercial real estate. She acknowledged the number of real estate loans that will be coming due and needing refinancing coming up. So she says it's going to put, quote, a lot of stress on the property owners, but that bank supervisors are focused on this issue and on helping them manage through it. Overall, she says she's concerned, but that the issues should be manageable, although some institutions may be quite stressed by what's ahead. Brian. All right. Megan Casella on Janet Yellen. Megan, thank you very much. All right. Now let's get to Julia Borston for a CNBC News update. Hey, Brian. Well, New Hampshire's attorney general today named a Texas company as the source of an apparently AI generated robocall pretending to be President Biden that told Democrats not to vote in last month's presidential primary. The calls came days before the vote, using the president's voice to persuade Democrats from voting. The state AG says that while progress has been made in the investigation, there is not enough yet to bring charges. Maui police just released a report that looked into its response to the fires that leveled the town of Lahaina and killed at least 100 people in August. Of the 32 recommendations to improve response for future disasters, the report recommended better equipment and stationing a high-ranking officer in the island's communication center during emergencies. And Prince Harry arrived in London to see his father, King Charles, a day after the king's cancer diagnosis. Buckingham Palace said last night that the king was being treated for the undisclosed form of cancer that was found during treatment for an enlarged prostate. Back over to you. All right, Julia Borston. Julia, thank you. All right, on deck, we asked over 1,000 young American voters which company they would invest in. They say they love tech, but there's also something preventing them from putting their money where their mouth is. We'll tell you what that is coming up. 
And remember, during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here is Goldman Sachs Global Head of Corporate Engagement, Asahi Pompey, sharing her story. I was an immigrant and we grew up in, in public housing. I think there was nothing about my background that it was, would have suggested that I would grow up to become the senior most black professional um, at Goldman Sachs or the second person in the firm's history to sit on the management committee as a black person. But I think um, there's a universality about black history is American history and American history is black history. And I think there's so much to be learned in that. I'm going to break some news to you. There is a presidential election this year, we're told, and it's happening in exactly 39 weeks. One demographic that is vast and could and probably will make a difference are younger voters. Understanding what motivates them is key, and that's why CNBC has teamed up with the Generation Lab to poll over 1,000 people between 18 and 34 from all 50 states, even Alaska. That poll was done in the last week of January. Joining us now with some of the biggest takeaways is the founder of Generation Lab, and that is Cyrus Mishlaw. Cyrus, good to have you on. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Uh, I got to imagine, and I know inflation has come down. The rate of inflation has come down. But, man, I got to imagine the cost of living is still number one here. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that because it's on a giant graphic behind your head. <laughs> it's a lot better than looking at my head. So how big of a deal is this? Yeah. So I think we finally have some data that spells out what we've been hearing in terms of you know, mood music and the economy, keep trying to figure out what the big disconnect is between economic indicators and how people are feeling about the economy. What are the two big gems in the economy right now? Super low unemployment rates and stock market going absolutely bonkers. If I'm it doesn't young, benefit young people. I, don't, I mean, you know, not a lot of young people are owning a ton of stock, ex- if any. Exactly. If I'm a young person in terms of the unemployment rate, yeah, fine. I have a job but it's one where I'm basically living paycheck to paycheck. And then if the stock market's going crazy and I'm not participating in it, what good does that do? It's like, it's like they're skating on this ice rink and everything looks great. And there's this beautiful uh, unemployment rate and this beautiful yeah. stock market, but the ice beneath me is thin. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to enjoy the scenery when the ice beneath it, me is And thin. it's the difference we've talked about it many times, asset owners versus asset renters. Here's the thing. Old people and young people have one thing in common. We all got to eat. And I'm old and, you know, but I, I make a good living. But every time I go out to eat, I'm, I get a stomach ache because of the price. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't matter if it's Chick-fil-A or some high-end steakhouse. How are you guys affording food? I think short answer is, you know, they're not. Mom and dad? I mean, I, seriously, how do you, I don't understand. I don't get it. Sandwiches are like 15 bucks. I, there you go. Uh, they are 90% are making most, if not all, of their meals as opposed to going out and getting food. So that's probably the first reflex, one of the first places you're going to trim your sales when times are tight. Again, kind of have to remind people that for young people, times are tight, um, is food. And food, as we can see on that, another giant, beautiful graphic behind your head, Cyrus, and you can turn and look if you want. You can see this food, 56% of those you surveyed at Generation Lab are saying that's it. You got health care, rent, obviously a big deal, though a lot of people, you know, listen, 20 years old, live at home. Why not? You're at college or you come home for the summer, you're living at home. I don't know who the 4% is. I didn't notice. Uh, that's the cannabis trade, I guess. I don't know, man. Like, whatever. It's all good. Um, we're told you got to save for retirement early. I, I didn't save much for retirement in my 20s. I didn't have a lot of money. I, I spent everything I, I made. 
But, you know, you guys are smarter. I think you're financially smarter. You've learned more lessons about wealth. You've been through a number of recessions. Present company and, excluded. Well, at teens and whatever. Um, anybody able to save for retirement? People are saving for retirement, but that's the exception, not the rule. Um, again, I mean, speaking to the theme here, if you don't have that much money left over after you account for all the essential items, it's kind of hard to imagine that your first reflex when you get home yeah. from work is to scroll through, you know, Roth IRA and, and, and you know, ways to invest in retirement. Yeah, it's not going to ha- not going to happen. I can't even imagine. It's a shame, but I get it with the higher cost. Do, do the folks you survey, the thousand 18 to 34 year olds, do they? I'm sure they would like to own a home. Do they see it as a reality? So we asked, right, whether folks are considering buying a home. At this moment, the biggest answer was that folks aren't even considering buying a home. We asked if the interest rates um, are going to affect the fact whether or not they they buy a home. Again, biggest majority said, I'm not even considering it. But of those who are considering it, interest rates, huge factor. Which is interesting because a 6% mortgage, while way up from where it was, is actually still historically low when you go back to the olden times, my, my era and my parents' era. So what, what does economically, politically, regulatorily, Cyrus, what are the folks you surveyed, what, are the, what do they want most? That's a great question. So economically, uh, in terms of regula- regulation, um, you know, I'm guessing that not a ton of people watching right now or, you know, pounding the table asking for more red tape. Um, but you think about it from the perspective of young people, I think the youngest people that we surveyed in this, they went into the workforce during the pandemic. The oldest folks that we surveyed in here, uh, they came into the workforce during the Great Recession. Um, they know what suffering on Main Street looks like. And, you know, I think they, they, want, they want nurses to get a raise more than they want, you know, a, Jeff Bezos to make more money. I get it. There you go. I mean, I think we could all agree on that. And, and it was interesting. We bring that back up because, and by the way, we got a lot of listeners on Sirius XM, too. I always want to acknowledge them when we throw up charts and they're driving going, I don't understand what they're looking at. It's a pie chart. There's two pieces of the pie. There's 66%. Which should U.S. business government leaders be focused on? 66% said regulations and new laws for American corporations. 34% corporate growth and increased profits. So it's, it doesn't appear that your generation, Cyrus, that 66% is afraid of more regulation. Absolutely. And it'd be really interesting to see how that changes, you know, once they really get established in, in the workforce. But you're absolutely right. I mean, right now, they've got their priorities pretty clear. And healthcare is, well, look at that. Uh, current healthcare system working. Right. 73% said government should fund and regulate more. Interesting. Healthcare, a huge cost. That Don't one. get hurt. Don't get sick. Right. That one's that, and that one makes sense intuitively. I think it's it's people think that healthcare should be cheaper and easier. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders gets a lot of subject of a lot of jokesters and everything. Yeah. There's a reason why he had so much passion among young people. And, you know, I don't think it was because of his, his youth or his hair yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, listen, we, if you have the majority of American bankruptcies across all age spectrums right. come from healthcare related debt, medical debt. Just can't afford it. Tells you all you need. It's unbelievable. These are great results. I love it. I'm sure we'll see you again. Work with the Generation Lab again ahead of the election. Nine months, Cyrus. Nine months. Love it. Thank you. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right, Cyrus Bischloss of Generation Lab. Coming up, the head of the FAA wants more oversight of Boeing, and he made the case on Capitol Hill today. But before he sat down with lawmakers, he sat down with Phil LeBeau, and he did not hold back. That is next. 
All right, welcome back to The Exchange. FAA Director Mike Whitaker testifying about greater oversight of Boeing on Capitol Hill today, something that he also talked about with Phil LeBeau this morning. And Phil joins us now with more on a great and fascinating conversation, Phil. And Brian, I think the most interesting thing is that Mike Whitaker admits the current system isn't working. There's got to be a better way. And that's why they're doing an audit of Boeing to figure out, OK, what are we doing right now? What needs to be improved? Quickly take a look at shares of both Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems. And we'll talk about Spirit in a little bit, which is getting a nice move higher today after reporting Q4 results. And Boeing moving a little bit higher. Why? Well, a couple of things are going to be happening here in the next 15 minutes. One, we're going to get the NTSB preliminary investigation results from what happened with the Alaska Airlines flight where the door plug was ripped off in mid-flight. That comes out in about 15 minutes. Meanwhile, the FAA has added 26 inspectors, 20 in Renton, Washington, 6 in Wichita, Kansas. And the FAA safety audit is ongoing, to which I asked Mike Whitaker this morning, has anything popped up yet? Have you seen a red flag that makes you say, wait, this is worse than we expected? Here's what he had to say. We are getting feedback. Uh, we, we're waiting till we have all the data before we sort of talk about that. I think you can, you can assume we haven't found anything that has caused us to take immediate action, but we are, we are monitoring the system and, and collecting data. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, keep in mind that Whitaker will be in Renton, Washington next week to firsthand take a look at the manufacturing of 737 Maxes. He has been in steady contact with Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing. Uh, you get the impression from talking with him, Brian, that uh, they know that they've got a ways to go before they can make a determination about how to improve the safety culture at Boeing in terms of being the oversight agency there. But you also get the impression that he feels that they're making some progress here. There's still more steps that need to be explored, and that will happen, obviously, over the months to come. Yes. Okay. Spirit Aerosystems yes. is at session highs right now. Stocks yep. up six and a half percent. Any idea what is behind that move? Oh, up? it's the conference call, Brian. Uh, Pat Shanahan went into this. He's the new CEO. And I say new. He took over in the fourth quarter at Spirit. Worked out a deal in terms of fuselage production uh, with Boeing. He's in the process of, of working out pricing with Airbus. They're also a supplier to Airbus. But more importantly, he talked about the steps that they have taken right now to cleaning up their act. They have long had a problem in terms of quality control. And this was a tour de force in terms of if you listen to a conference call and you want to know if a CEO realizes the situation and what needs to be done to improve it, Pat Shanahan did that when you listen to this conference call. That's why the stock moved steadily higher over the last hour and a half. Phil LeBeau, Spirit Air Systems up 6%. Phil, fascinating conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, forget inflation, forget recession risk. Is the stage set for solid returns this year? Outside of all of it, your next guest thinks so, and he's here to tell you why. And before we head to break, let us get some show and tell. We're going to show you a chart, tell you the story. Palantir having its best day ever after growing revenue by 20% year over year, thanks to art and demand for what else? AI. Those results are bad, or enough rather, for Citigroup and Jefferies to upgrade the stock from sell to hold. And here's what CEO Alex Karp said on last night's earnings call about geopolitics. The more dangerous, the more real it gets, the more battle-tested and real your software has to be. I believe it's about to get very real. Why? Because our GDP growth is significantly better than China's. Now, I know the always wrong crowd says we then should get peace, but 
I'm telling you that the rational result of the rational uh, uh, consequences of that is our adversaries are like, America's going to be stronger tomorrow than today. It's like they don't have a GDP story because they cannot, they do not build these systems as well as we do. They do not have the tech community we do. And they do not have the U.S. market like we do. Re look at our results. Welcome back. Another one bites the dust. Deutsche Bank no longer expects the American economy to go into recession this year, and neither does your next guest. In fact, he says most fears for the year are probably overdone, and we could see a year of double-digit returns again. Let's bring in Jeff Krumpelman. He is Chief Investment Strategist for Mariner Wealth Advisors. Jeff, good to see you again. What makes you so optimistic about 2024? Well, you know, our optimism really started going back to 2023, and uh, I don't think the story has changed all that much. We, uh, I think the world expected recession and an earnings meltdown in 2023. And we thought 2023 would be the inverse of 2022. We already got that negative reaction in 2022. And then we had better than feared economy and earnings and calming inflation and the Fed peaked interest rates um, at about the levels that we thought they would, which are actually normal levels of Fed funds. And so when you look at the fundamental valuation and technical backdrop that really was quite good as we move through 2023, it still is. And, you know, the only mm. thing that shifted, I think, from a concern on our part is we had a contrarianly positive thesis going into last year, and now we're consensus. Everyone's come around to our view. And so you have to question when everyone else becomes positive, should you be positive? And I think it's the fundamental valuation and technical data that gives us the confidence to remain positive. We don't think we're gonna have crazy positive returns this year like we did last year. We just think it's gonna be normal, back yeah. to normal. That's all. You're probably a believer in history as well, Jeff. And history says that after a good year, we also do tend to have a good year, albeit with a little bit of weakness at the beginning. That data coming from Carson Group and many others. So uh, history is on our side. It is. And I think a lot of people want, you know, we're as, as human beings, we just have this negativity bias. And so we're skeptical. Can things continue? And you're right. If you look at history, the most common return category or cohort of returns in the S&P 500 going back to 1926 is greater than 20%. The second most common is greater than 10%. Rarely do we lose money and rarely do we get little or no gain. And that's because normally the economy and earnings are running pretty nicely and therefore it's, it's a great time to invest. It's a, it's a good environment to invest. And so it's not unusual to have a nice repeat. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the areas you like as well. Meta platforms. I mean, the stock has doubled, Jeff, more than doubled off its lows, pretty much just went back to where it was, but still heck of a run. What do you see there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, so often people will criticize buying a stock at a 52 week high and I've made more money and our team has made more money uh, over the years, buying stocks at 52-week highs if they continue to, you know, execute. And we actually just recently came into Meta. 
we took a look at the fundamentals and uh, you've got great cost control that's going on. You've got a nice advertising cycle, a political advertising year, and you're seeing pretty solid pricing and, and, and they're nicely positioned within that advertising pie. It's trading at 20 times earnings, Brian, 20 times earnings. And, and yet we're looking at 30% growth rates as they control costs and you get pretty good top line. There's not a whole lot not to like. I actually was concerned because we didn't have exposure to Meta. We had some of the other mega sevens, but we didn't have exposure until recently, and I wanted to close that gap. And thankfully, we, we did that before we had that nice 20% day uh, just a couple of days ago. I guess but the same like. thinking of buy high, sell higher, which by the name of a book by our good friend Joe Terranova, goes to NVIDIA. That's, that's, that's right. And you know, we, we, you really have to, when a stock moves like it did, where you get 200% plus returns, you, you have to really make sure you have conviction to continue to be in that name. But um, it, it is in a uh, growth cycle like none, 150% uh, earnings or revenue growth last year, 250% earnings growth, projected 80% earnings growth this year, and yet it's only trading at 30 times earnings. You know, I'm sorry that if I if you didn't say NVIDIA, Brian, and you just gave those statistics about the end markets they're in, the growth rates they have, and the valuation, you'd say, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that till the cows, you know, come home. So uh, just because it's got the, the name NVIDIA in it, I would not say you got to brandish it as something to avoid at all. Like in two hot stocks, NVIDIA and Meta Platforms, Jeff Crumpleman of Mariner Wealth, Jeff Pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. So before we wrap up the exchange, we got Courtney Reagan getting ready for power lunch. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Let's get a check on the markets here. We're seeing a little bit of a rebound in the big caps, not the tech side, but the Dow is up three tenths of one percent. S&P exactly the same, kind of gaining back a little bit of what we lost on Monday yesterday. The, the Nasdaq is down by about two tenths of one percent. The market's been just totally relying on yield in the 10 year is at 4.089%. All right, that does it for us on The Exchange. I will join Miami of Ohio's own Courtney Reagan on Power Lunch right after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.